Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode six in our 2 Corinthians Bible study podcast. This episode is entitled The Ministry of Reconciliation, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Well, this is one of the greatest chapters in the entire New Testament on motivations and philosophies and uh, aspects of personal evangelism. So we're going to walk through some of what motivated Paul to, to... share the gospel, to lead others to Christ, and we're going to see levels of motivation. Uh, There are other incredible aspects and statements in 2 Corinthians 5, but Paul is explaining how God has committed to his church, to all of us to some degree, the ministry and the message of reconciliation. So we're going to talk about that today. At the end of this chapter, we're going to get into one of the greatest single-verse descriptions of salvation in the entire Bible. I use 2 Corinthians 5.21 regularly in my sermons, God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is no clearer Mm. verse in the entire Bible on substitutionary atonement and the transfer of guilt to Christ and the transfer of righteousness to us. Well, we've got quite the passage to look at today, and I want to go ahead and read it for us as we begin. So let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this— that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come." All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Andy, as you mentioned, there's a lot in this passage we can walk through as motivations for evangelism. I think we could even walk through this and and maybe insert phrases like, I should evangelize because, and then fill in the blank with some of what we're looking at today. So I'm, I'm eager for us to do that even in our conversation. But as we begin in, in verse 11, how does the fear of the Lord cause us to persuade people to come to Christ? Are we supposed to fear what God will do to us if we don't evangelize? Or are we fearing what God will do to the lost if they don't come to Christ? Or maybe both? I think it's both. Um, Paul says very plainly, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. 
So there is a sense of a stewardship entrusted to us and a sense that we are under an obligation. And though we don't fear condemnation to hell, we definitely do fear disappointing Christ. Mm. We do fear repercussions of disobedience. The Lord could discipline us if we're not faithful to share our faith. So there's aspects of us fearing the Lord. But I think even more compelling is this. We should fear the Lord for those who don't yet fear the Lord. Hmm. You know, sometimes you'll see bumper stickers like uh, this one kind of maybe a little bit of a redneckish bump bumper sticker says, ain't scared. Um, <laughs> it means I'm not afraid. I'm not, I've got no fear. Hmm. Well, if you're a lost person, you should be afraid every moment of your life. You are walking on a rotten plank over the uh, eternity in hell, over the lake of fire, and you don't even know it. And because you don't know it and because you have no fear in the matter and you should have fear, we who love you should fear on behalf of you. Hmm. I think about one example recently. I was watching uh, a very, I think, terrifying movie called Free Solo, mm. in which he was talking about a man named Alex Honnold, and he was climbing El Capitan with no equipment, no ropes, nothing, just free soloing for four hours this rock face, thousands of feet off the Yosemite floor. As I found out more information about Alex Honnold, I found out he's not a believer, he's an atheist. And he also has no fear while he's he's climbing. He said, if you have adrenaline and all that, you can't, you can't climb. I thought, wow, I'm immediately terrified on your behalf because you are a slipped handhold away from hell, eternity mm. in hell. Mm. And I think whatever would ever happen with Alex Honnold and if somebody could lead him to Christ, it would be marvelous and I'll never know him, I guess. But the fact of the matter is I should, if I cared about him and if I knew him and if I'm a Christian, I should fear the Lord on his behalf. Now, what role does persuasion play in evangelism, and how is evangelism a combination of both reason mm -hmm. and passion? Yeah, that's a great question. There is a reasonableness to Christianity. There's a logic to it. God gave us the gift of logic. He enabled our minds to know and understand and reason things together. So in a very powerful, I think, evangelistic passage in Isaiah 1, uh, God says to uh, the, the apostate nation of Israel, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you'll eat the best from the land. But if if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's some logic behind all that. This just makes good sense hmm. for you to flee to Christ and find full forgiveness of sins and not spend eternity in hell is a reasonable thing to do. Hmm. Conversely, it's very unreasonable for you to toss the whole thing aside as though it's a fanti fantasy, a fairy tale, and go on in your sin not worried about it. So there's a reasonableness to it. We also think about logic. There's certain things that are just true about the universe we live in. For example, um, in the progression of history, uh, in the unfolding of time, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. There is a beginning to a matter. There's a middle to the matter and an end to the matter. There's a progression. We've noticed, if you've lived any length of time, we don't know the future. Hmm. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. As James says, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. 
And so therefore, verbally predictive prophecies, things that were spoken centuries before they were fulfilled, are clear evidence of the supernatural nature of the gospel. And Christ's substitutionary atoning death was predicted in Isaiah the prophet seven centuries before Jesus was born and mm -hmm. many, many other aspects of his life. It is reasonable for us to see that as evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. So we can reason with people. We can, we can persuade them. However, there's also a certain amount of passion. It's logic on fire when we're sharing the gospel. We're reasoning and persuading, and even at the end of this chapter, pleading with people. Um, so there's that passion as well. What does the second half of verse 11 and verse 12 contribute to Paul's argument, and how do these words show the importance of the character and lifestyle of the messengers of the gospel? Well, this is one of the big themes of 2 Corinthians. Paul's having to defend his reputation. There are these people, we'll find out later in this book, but we'll mention them many times before we get there, super apostles. They came in after Paul, and they claim to be even better apostles than the, the real apostles, and they're actually false teachers. They're um, messengers of Satan, masquerading as servants of righteousness, Paul calls them. At any rate, they are attacking the reputation of Paul and of his co-workers. And this is a, a devastating thing. They're undermining the confidence of the Corinthians in the very messengers of the gospel who brought them the gospel of salvation. So mm -hmm. now they don't know who to trust. And he said, honestly, what we are is plain to God. God knows what we are. And so that's it's no proof, but still, we're confident before God that we are what we appear to be, which is messengers of God preaching the true gospel. And I certainly hope that it is plain to your conscience. I hope that you know also that we are what we claim to be, which is true, faithful workers of the gospel that God entrusted to us. Now, while Paul's hopeful that that's the way the Corinthians feel about them, verse 13 seems to imply that there were some who might have thought that Paul was out of his mind as he was doing evangelism, as he was spreading this message of the gospel. Why do passionate Christians sometimes look insane to lost people? Yeah, I think this goes back to some of the themes in 1 Corinthians where um, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It, it makes no sense. Why would God save the entire world the Roman world, the Greek world, the great world beyond little Israel and little, the little Jewish state in Palestine by means of a, of a poor Jew who was nailed to a Roman cross. Mm. And everyone has to believe that that dead Jewish man on the cross is the savior of the world. That's a little hard to believe for the unbeliever, and it seems foolishness. It seems foolishness. Now, to the Jew, he says it is a stumbling block. It's offensive. So at any rate, it just seems crazy. And we were talking about this right before we went on the air, uh, that uh, the Apostle Paul, in his defense before uh, King Festus, and or Festus and King uh, Agrippa, sorry, and his wife Bernice, Festus cries out, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning has driven you insane. And he said, I'm not insane. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. I love those words. So I think to answer your question, the gospel seems foolish to unbelievers. And it seems also like Paul, with his passion and his zeal for the glory of God, might seem like he was leading an eccentric life and so maybe the super apostles are saying, now this guy's a crazy man. He's a wild man. Hmm. So, uh, you know, you're crazy. He says, all right, fine. If we're out of our minds, it's for God's sake. Uh, God made us this way, but we're not out of our minds. And frankly, the second half is if we're in our right mind, it's for you. 
And we need you, Corinthians, to see that we actually are speaking what is true and reasonable. We're mm. true, reasonable men. We are what we appear to be, which is proclaimers of the true gospel. Now, Paul continues in verse 14 and says, the love of Christ controls or compels us. What does Paul mean by this? And is this the love of Christ for us or the love for him that compels or constrains us to evangelize the lost? Okay, so let's go to the end first, and that is the idea of compulsion or being constrained. This is essential to the spread of the gospel from the upper room in Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The messengers are sinful people, they're reluctant people, they're people who don't sufficiently care about their neighbors. That's all of us, isn't it? We're all the priest and Levite walking by on the other side of the road uh, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, not caring sufficiently that our neighbor is bleeding. We don't really care much. And yet God has used self-centered, sinful messengers for 20 centuries to take the gospel where it needed to go. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. So it is the compulsion of the Spirit. Mm. It is the driving energy of the Spirit. He puts a compulsion on you to share your faith with your lost relative or your lost neighbor, or to go perhaps as a missionary. He puts a fire in William Carey's heart, a passion that even moved him to tears concerning the lostness of the heathen, as they called them back then in India. It made him get on the boat and sail thousands of miles to a distant land to share the gospel. Where does that fire, that drive, that compulsion come from but the Holy Spirit? So key to personal evangelism is the compulsion of the Spirit, this, this driving aspect that comes in us. Therefore, we know that this is essential to God's guarantee. All that the Father gives me will come to me, said Jesus. All of the elect will be saved. In order to be saved, according to Romans 10, they have to hear the gospel. And in order for that to happen, messengers have to be sent. And in order for messengers to be sent, this has to happen, the compulsion of the Spirit, mm. the love of Christ compelling or constraining us. Mm. So that's, I think, the second half is, is vital. Now, what is it that drives us? What does the Spirit use? The phrase here is the love of Christ. So this is one of two things. It's either the love demonstrated by Christ or, or, you know, in general for the world, or it's the love um, that Christ has for us. So the love that characterized Christ or demonstrated was demonstrated by Christ of caring for other people. Think of his healing ministry. He cared about everyone. Everyone that came to him with a need, he met the need. He cared. And so the love of Christ, to be like Christ, mm. to love like he did, um, you know, that's that's vital. Um, it could also refer to the love that we have for Christ, the desire we have to show. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Mm. And so it's one or the other, either the sense that we are going to display the kind of love that had that Christ had for us and that he has for the world, and that drives us, or it could be that our love for Christ is driving us. We want to please him. He's mm -hmm. commanded us to be his messengers. Here's the thing. You don't need to choose. <laughs> There's so much biblical mm -hmm. evidence on both sides. It's sure. so equipoised. It's like, I don't know which it is. Fine, get them both. It's a two for, the, two for the price of one sale. We get them both. So the love that Christ has for the world, we should have that. So that compels us to evangelize. Conversely, the love we have for Christ compels us. We want to obey him because he's our Lord and Savior, mm -hmm. et cetera. What so a powerful both. motivation for evangelism, both, right? Yeah. The love Christ has for us and the love by his grace we have for him as well. And so here we have the two great motives, don't, don't we? Fear 
and love. Hmm. These are things that drive human beings, right? Hmm. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing that that moves you. If, you. if your house is a fire, you run. You get out of there because you're afraid for your life. So there's a certain amount of fear. Fear is a motivator. Hmm. You know, the the since then we know what it is what it is to fear the Lord. We fear on behalf of that, but also love. And so I've actually felt a feeling of love for a lost person while witnessing to them. And I actually said at the end, you might think this is strange, but my whole reason for talking to you is I would actually enjoy spending eternity with you in heaven. Mm. And he didn't think it amiss. We'd we'd talked for about 45 minutes, and he sensed that there was a genuine love I had in my heart. Mm. I think we don't evangelize because we don't love. We don't really care that much that our neighbor is perishing. And that's native to our sin nature. We need to go before the Lord in prayer and say, God, would you make me care more about my neighbor? Make me care more about my lost coworker. Make me care more that somebody is perishing. Give me a love for the lost. Verse 14 continues, and verse 14 and 15 really speak of Christ's death. What does it mean that Christ died for all and therefore all died and how is this a motivation for evangelism as well? Right. So uh, this is the the theme that the author of Hebrews brings up again and again, the once for all aspect of Christ's death. There is this one once for all substitutionary death that the sins of the land, as the prophet said, would be uh, atoned for in a single day. The single most powerful event in all of human history is the death of Christ. It changed the eternal destinies of a countless multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation. For, you know, Christ died in their place, all of them in a single day. He didn't have to die again and again, but as the author of Hebrews says again and again, once for all. And so he died one one man dying for all that would be saved, or we would say all the elect. And therefore, secondly, he says, all died. So that's where you get Galatians 2.20 and also Romans 6, that we were crucified with Christ. There's a spiritual union. Uh, When we come to faith in Christ, effectively his death has become ours, or we could say the death we deserve to die. And so therefore, uh, it says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, and I no longer live. So the idea is we are united with Christ in his death, uh, and therefore all died. We've talked a lot about motivations for evangelism, but I think there's also potential hindrances that we need to be aware of as well. How should Christ's death for us free us from living for ourselves, and how does selfishness, or living for ourselves, keep us from evangelism? That's the single greatest uh, hindrance, is we're selfish. That's what the flesh is all about. The flesh is all about me. It's all about what I want, what would please me, what would um, bring me pleasure and delight and all that. An infant coming into the world uh, has that fanatical commitment to self. Well, that's the way all of us are, and good parenting is to is to is to train us out of that self-focus and be able to care about others, et cetera. Well, the same thing with sanctification, that God, by his sanctifying work in us, moves us to be like Christ, to care about others more than you care about yourself. Mm. Jesus would rather die on the cross than that we perish. And that's the idea of no longer living for ourselves. We see it in Christ's servant heart as again and again, individuals would come to him with a healing need or a father would come with a a sick child at home or a mother would come with a demon-possessed daughter and Jesus would get up and go address it. And so the idea here is that uh, he died for us that we should, having died with him, no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ. Mm. So now um, Galatians 2.20 finishes a thought so beautifully. I have been crucified with Christ, and guess what? I no longer live, 
but Christ lives in me. Keep going, Paul. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's a very good partner verse mm. to what he's saying mm -hmm. here. In that Christ was willing to die in my place, to die for me, I should now be willing to live for him and to serve him and to die to myself and go share the gospel. Uh, so I'm convinced that I should not live for myself. One of the number one reasons I don't evangelize is I care too much about me. Mm. So this verse is uh, powerful to liberate us from that. Yeah, it's a great partner. Galatians 2.20 with 2 Corinthians 5.15. Mm -hmm. What does it mean, as Paul continues then in verse 16, to regard someone according to the flesh? And how is the commitment to see people through a spiritual lens vital to our evangelism? Well, the word flesh is a very important theological word uh, for Paul. Um, some translations have a kind of a worldly point of view, that worldly, you know, to look at people in a fleshly way means in a way that benefits me. What can you do for me? How can you help me in my agenda? What, what way can you please me? How can I use you? That's, that's natural to the fleshly mind. And Paul says, I'm not going to look at people in a fleshly sort of way anymore. And furthermore, I'm going to go beyond what my eye sees. The fact of the matter is every single physical person we lay eyes on has an invisible eternal soul that will spend eternity in heaven or hell. We can't see that soul, but we know it's there as Christians. So we're not going to just look at the outward external appearance. Furthermore, we're not going to look at their position in society and community, their wealth, their power, their privilege. The Apostle Paul actually went and preached the gospel to Caesar in Rome knowing that Caesar would spend eternity when he died, either, either in heaven or hell. And so Paul, though he was on trial for his life, Paul was compassionate to Nero mm -hmm. and concerned about whether he would spend eternity in heaven or hell wow. and had the hope that maybe he would repent of his great sins and tyrannies and come to faith in Christ. And so the idea here is we're not going to look at people any longer as just how we can use them or what we can get out of them, or just, yeah, physical people or wealthy or poor, uh, you know, handsome or, or, or not handsome, athletic or not. We're not going to look at people that way any longer. We're going to look at them from an eternal and spiritual perspective. Now, verse 17 of this chapter may be one of the most important verses for a new Christian to memorize and meditate on. What does it mean for someone to be in Christ and how does being in Christ make someone a new creation? Yeah, this was the first Bible verse I ever memorized. I came to faith in Christ my junior year at MIT, and uh, we began with the Navigator's topical memory system, and this was the first one, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, everything has become new. I think it was New American Standard uh, version I memorized then, although I probably morphed it with other versions at this point. <laughs> so it's a great first verse because it's it's for a new Christian, I think, and it's like you need to know that you're a new creation. And it's just a very, very powerful um, statement here. Uh, the, the whole chapter seems to be about the ministry of reconciliation, gospel ministry, Paul's motivations, his way of thinking about it. At the core of it is a miracle of grace. It's uh, the Nicodemus statement about you must be born again. It's mm. the transformation of the gospel. It's what we saw in the previous chapter in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God speaking light into darkness. It's, it's the creative power of God that God is able to speak into the dark, empty nothingness of our wicked soul and speak the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ and make you, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, this verse, a new creation. 
So the word creation really goes back to creation, back to Genesis, back to in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if you become a Christian, you are a mighty creation of God. The same God who spoke the universe into existence speaks your eternal life into existence. You are a new creation if you are in Christ. Now that word in Christ, very significant, that phrase, the idea of being positionally in Christ, united with him, uh, like he's your realm, you're now in, a, in, in the kingdom of God kind of thing. You're seen to be united with him or in him. If that's the case, you are a new creation. And it says, the old has gone, behold, everything has become new. So that means you know, this is not literally universally true. There are some things that you still live at the same home and you have the mm -hmm. same name and all mm -hmm. of those sorts of things. But everything that really matters has changed. You now love what you used to hate and you hate what you used to love. And so you now hate sin. You used to love sin, but now you hate it. Um, you used to hate Christians. Now you love to be with them. You used to hate the idea of reading the Bible. Now you can't get enough. Uh, things have become new. Everything has become new. You're a new creation. Andy, that's so helpful because I think sometimes we can maybe have a flawed understanding of this and think that we'll never deal with sin again, mm -hmm. uh, or we can think too lowly of this and think we can just go on as we always were and still engage in some of these habits. I think in Infinite Journey, there's just those helpful charts on sanctification mm -hmm. to kind of map out what this may look like, that at that moment of regeneration, we are a completely new creation, mm -hmm. and then those old things have passed away and will continue to pass away as we put sin to death. Praise it's just God. a powerful meditation on what it means for us to be a new creation as we're united with Christ. So I love yeah. that. Yeah, it's also key to my insight that in eternity, we will have memory of our sins, but it won't trouble us because we're, we're entirely new creatures. It's like It was like that was a different person, Wow, entirely different person. That even includes the sins that we commit as Christians because we're mixed beings now. We're, we've got the flesh still, but we've got the indwelling spirit. And so we can say, look, tell it all. I have no fear in the matter. I'm beyond all that. That's what actually happened while I was alive. So we're new creations. Uh, we're going to a place in which all of that will be passed. In verse 18, we begin to get this reconciliation language that we mentioned earlier. What does it mean that God reconciled us to himself? And how does this work of reconciliation relate to the fact that at one time, we were enemies of God. Well, that's foundational to the concept of reconciliation. Reconciliation, speaking of, of, let's say, just keep it simple, two individuals that need to be reconciled, there is hostility, there's enmity. Mm. There is a warfare going on between them. They have become enemies. Uh, you could see, see the same between two nations, et cetera. Reconciliation means uh, two individuals, let's say, focus on individuals who are at one point enemies are now warmly friends together. The relationship is healed. Uh, where there was enmity or hatred, there is now love. Where there was repulsion, there is now attraction. Mm. Um, that's what reconciliation is all about. Now, here's the key. In this verse, uh, verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And so the idea here is, you know, m many, I would say, if not most non-Christians don't feel that they are God's enemies or that God is their enemy. They don't think about that at all. They, they think, ah, I mean, I'm good with the man upstairs or some disrespectful thing like that, et cetera. They don't really think there's a problem. But from God's point of view, biblically, there's a massive problem. We, at one time, the scripture says, we're his enemies. Romans chapter five, if when we we're God's enemies, we we're reconciled to, we became enemies the moment we sinned. Mm. And so God in his holy hatred of sin 
could have just crushed us and gotten us out of his universe because he hates sin so much. So uh, at this point, there is a massive gulf of estrangement between us and the holy God. Now, if we suddenly then realize that, said, wow, I want to get in good with God. I mean, what do I have to do? What can I do? If God had no interest in being reconciled to us, it would be impossible. Mm. I was thinking about that proverb before we came on the air. A brother offended is more unyielding than bars of iron. So uh, the proverb is saying, like, if somebody's angry at you and they don't want to be reconciled, you're not going to be able to do anything with it. Well, imagine infinitely more God. If God did not want to be reconciled to us, we wouldn't be. Wow. But instead, God in his grace and his mercy and his kindness, this is the incredible good news of the gospel, does want to be reconciled to us. But he has to do it. He has to reconcile us to himself. It, you can think of almost like a mental reconciliation. I have to kind of reconcile myself to the idea, blah, blah, blah. God has to reconcile himself to the idea of spending eternity with sinners like us. And he did that through the cross. And verse 19 reiterates this unilateral work of God in reconciling mm -hmm. the world to himself as well. So yeah. he's reconciling us to himself. He's mm -hmm. also reconciling the world to himself as a sovereign ruler over all things. He has the right and, mm -hmm. and is the only one who can right. do that work. Now, Paul speaks not just of God reconciling us to himself, but also the ministry of reconciliation yeah. and the message of reconciliation yeah. using different Greek words. But he says that God has committed each of these to us. Wow. How should mm. we understand these different words that Paul uses in this passage, and what's he talking about? Remember, here? the unifying theme that we're looking at here, the central theme is motivations that we have for evangelism, for getting involved in the external journey, the gospel advance. Well, this is huge. God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. So this whole massive, infinite work of reconciliation has in some mysterious way been entrusted to us. Now, who's the us? Paul could just be speaking about himself and his team, or it could be just the apostles, Or, but it, it just doesn't seem that way. The Holy Spirit gave us these words so that they would live long after Paul died. And Jesus said, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So it's to the end of the age, this ministry of reconciliation, this message of reconciliation has been entrusted to his church, his people. It is up to us to take this message to the lost. Now, what is the difference between the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation? I think there's just a, a partnership between meeting people's felt needs and caring for people and loving them and being hospitable and um, you know visiting the sick and, and caring for people as the context then for a wonderful message, the word of the gospel of, of Christ, uh, the incarnate son of God who lived a sinless life, who died an atoning death and who rose from the dead on the third day, that message of the gospel and of justification by faith alone, by repentance and faith in Jesus, all your sins can be forgiven. That's the message of reconciliation. And the ministry is the context, the loving context, caring for the people we're sharing with. God has entrusted that whole thing to us, his wow. church. Wow, that's powerful. Mm -hmm. And it seems like Paul goes on in verse 20 to help us understand this maybe as well by using the image of an ambassador, a, wow. a phrase that we might be more familiar with than mm -hmm. just these terms, ministry of reconciliation, message of reconciliation. So what does it mean for us to be ambassadors, uh, God's ambassadors to a sinful, hostile, rebellious world? It's a very powerful concept, and I love this word. This word. I think we should look on it in terms of two kingdoms or two regimes or realms that are relating to each other. 
and an emissary and an official messenger from one king to the other would be, we'd use the word here, ambassador. Mm. And so we're talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. They're mm. the same. And, you know, Christ is the ultimate ambassador. But then uh, he said in John's gospel, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So we are the sent ones, and we are representing God the King. Mm. And what are we saying? We are urging, we're imploring people to repent. We're basically saying your sins have been an act of rebellion against your liege Lord. You have denied his authority. You have denied his laws, but you're living in his world. And he is now graciously offering to forgive your rebellion and to bring you back into a right relationship with himself. We are here as official ambassadors of his. You should treat us well. Uh, you should listen to our words and you should repent and be reconciled to the king, that kind of message. Mm. Do you see how that gives you a tremendous courage and a sense of authority? Now, here's the thing. You could well imagine back in the days of the Roman Empire, uh, an emissary of Caesar going to some very you know, uh, warlike Germanic tribe, and they don't know much about Rome or how powerful Rome is, and the emissary goes and doesn't survive the day, mm. gets beheaded. Um, or mistreated and beheaded, something like that. It's like, well, they don't really understand what's behind that emissary. Wow. Yeah. They don't understand what's soon to happen to their little tribe because of what's gone on. And you think about all of the missionaries mm. and the evangelists that have been poorly treated, if not literally martyred, messengers one after the other um, who have been mistreated. But we are ambassadors. We are official represent representatives of the king. And so we are ambassadors. There's a very powerful story that I have in my mind from Adoniram Judson when he and another missionary went up the Irrawaddy River uh, to the king of Burma. And the king of Burma, King Bagida, um, was a very isolated king. He didn't understand how big the world was and all the things that were going on, but he was the absolute monarch and seemed to be a deity of that uh, kingdom. Well, Judson and his fellow missionary were going there to beg indulgence of the emperor for religious freedom for Christians, but also, more importantly, to preach the gospel to him. And so they did make their appeal for religious freedom, and then through a tract that Judson had written explaining the gospel in culturally sensitive terms, they explained the gospel to the king. Um, the king took the gospel tract, uh, looked over it briefly, then let his arm fall to his side and the tract slip out of his hand and fall to the ground. He stepped on it and walked out of the room and Judson never saw him again. He didn't say a word about the appeal for religious freedom. Mm -hmm. He didn't say a word about the gospel either. Now, I don't know what eventually happened to King Bagida, but I know this, he was a mortal man with an eternal soul. And if he never did come to faith in Christ, he will spend eternity regretting how he treated Judson and coming to the conclusion he had misunderstood what was really going on that day. Mm. It wasn't so much that these foreigners were begging his indulgence for something in his kingdom. No, 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 the true king of kings was offering him amnesty, offering him forgiveness of his sins and a welcome into his own kingdom, and he misunderstood that moment. Mm. So that's what ambassadors are. We are representatives of the king of the universe. Yeah. 
And we talked a little bit about passion at the beginning of this being coupled with reason in our evangelism. Mm -hmm. And we get some more of this kind of language in verse 20, it seems. Mm -hmm. In what ways does God make his appeal to lost people through us? And how should Paul's words that we implore or beg Mm -hmm. those listening to be reconciled to God give us a pattern for evangelism? Well, honestly, Wes, I'm literally getting goosebumps right now as I think about this. This has happened many times before. The idea that Almighty God, in some way, through the Spirit, is inhabiting us, is inside us, speaking through us to a lost person. God is in me right now, sharing the gospel with this lost person, as though God himself were making his appeal. And think of the humility of Almighty God making an appeal. And then he goes on to this language of begging or imploring. We beg you. So it's though God himself is begging people to be reconciled to God. It's it's amazing, the humility, as it says in Romans, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. God, like the father of the prodigal son, begging the son to come home. And so this is what we are as ambassadors. By the Holy Spirit, by the indwelling spirit, almighty God is in us begging lost people to be reconciled to God. Mm-hmm. Now, we talked about this idea of begging. Um, I asked you, and both of us acknowledge, I don't think I've ever done this mm-hmm. in my life. Yeah. You imagine the awkwardness. As you said, it's hard enough just to bring somebody to a point of decision. You need to make a decision about the gospel. That's awkward enough, but it's necessary. But imagine if they gave indications they were gonna make the wrong decision, mm. that you started to weep, literally, to cry and to beg. I'm pleading with you. I'm begging you. Don't do this. You really imagine you're on an airplane sharing the gospel, and a person's like, "All right, dude, this is getting this is getting a little heavy here. I mean, back off." Mm-hmm. It would be very awkward. But we see this in um, in Acts chapter two with Peter in the Pentecost sermon. It says, "With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation." Mm-hmm. So there is a begging or pleading that should be in our hearts. But I imagine it is hard for us to get to that level. Mm-hmm. We can see though the passion of Paul weeping over the lost Jews, of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. There should be that passion in us. Andy, I can't think of a more powerful way to conclude this episode than to meditate on verse 21, as you mentioned at the beginning, a rich, rich articulation of what Christ has done and what we receive in Christ. It's one of the most significant verses in the Bible, as you mentioned, on substitutionary atonement and the double transfer or imputation involved in the cross of Christ, our sin to him, his righteousness to us. Mm. What does verse 21 teach us about Christ's purity and our Mm. positional righteousness in him? Mm -hmm. And how should this be at the center of our ministry of evangelism? Well, I I think we could do an entire podcast Mm. on this one verse. So first of all, we start with the beginning, God made him Christ. So this all came from God the Father. It was God's decree, God's decision. It was Jesus's obedience to the Father his willingness to do it, um, to drink that cup, as he saw saw in Gethsemane, the willingness. God made him Christ, who had no sin. So it's a vital statement of Christ's absolute sinless purity. If Christ had committed even one sin, he could not be our substitute. But he never sinned. He committed no sin. God made him who had no sin to then be sin. It's like he became the essence of sin the embodiment of sin. He was plunged into a vat or an ocean of sin and wickedness. The purest, the only pure man that's ever lived, the only good man that's ever lived, became in some 
mysterious, infinite way, the most wicked man that had ever lived, not anything he had done, but as our substitute. The sins, think about this, of a countless multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation that they committed all of them in their entire lives. As David said, my sins are more numerous than the hairs of my head. All of that put on Jesus. Mm -hmm. The defilement, the disgusting, repulsive rebellion, the impurity of it all. God made Jesus to be positionally guilty for all of us. It's, for me, absolutely mind-blowing. And I think that's part of the cup that Jesus recoiled from, not just the wrath of God, that's infinite enough, but the defilement, the disgusting, repulsive defilement of sin Mm. for Jesus in his purity to be immersed in it. He's every bit as holy as the Father and hates sin every bit as much as the Father does, but God made him to be sin for us, okay? Now, this is essential to then what happened. When he made him sin, this is the transfer of guilt from the elect onto Jesus, then what happened after that was not in any way unjust for God to them then crush him, not just physically, but spiritually, to withdraw his fellowship so that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That that was actually just because he was doing it to a positionally guilty individual. It was not unjust for him to do that. It was the, the purest, clearest act of justice in the universe because Jesus was guilty, though he himself committed no sin. Mm. God did that, the substitution. So all of my sins and yours, Wes, were taken from us and put on Jesus. Not one of them left to us, but 100% transferred to Jesus. And then Jesus died under the just wrath of God for our sins. That's the first half of the imputation, our sins to Jesus. The second half is so that in him, that's a positional language through faith in Christ, in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there, all of Jesus's purity, his active obedience to his father, the fact that he said in Roman, uh, sorry, in John's gospel, John 8, I always do what pleases him. Every moment of Jesus's life, he pleased the father. Mm. He was perfectly obedient to the law of God. He loved God with every fiber of his being, and he loved his neighbor as himself as no other man ever did. To, to be seen by God, Wes, you and I, as obedient as Jesus. We, we are seen by God to be as righteous as Jesus. And in that perfect righteousness, we will shine forever. And it's a gift. It's imputed righteousness. The thief on the cross went to heaven in that perfect righteousness mm. by faith alone. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians, where he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. That perfect righteousness, that's the double imputation. It's imputed or credited to our account by simple faith. Perfect 100% righteousness. Mm. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's a beautiful verse, and as we conclude our time, our prayer is that you would meditate on this, and it would motivate you to share this incredible message of reconciliation through the ministry of reconciliation that God's given to us so that others might know Christ, might know Him crucified, might come to believe in Him and be saved from their sin. May we all grow in our love for God and for our neighbor, and may He be pleased to use us powerfully for the advance of the gospel. 
This has been Episode 6 in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. We would invite you to join us next time for Episode 7 entitled The Cost and Commitment of This Day of Salvation, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys Podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.